last day of 2017, and it's the perfect time for a fresh start. Now, what I'm teaching you today is something that someone has been trying to teach me, a mentor of mine, and I want to present it to you as accurately as possible in the time that we have today. Now, as we get started, through the series, I have talked about bad blood relationships that you have in your life. Um, I've reminded you several times that not everyone that you are in a relationship deserves full access to you and your life. Not everyone needs that kind of access to your life. Not everyone should have that kind of access to your life. You are not commanded anywhere in Scripture to make your life open as a continued target for an emotional abuser. You don't have to allow a controlling person to continue to manipulate you. And that's why last week I told you about a book written by Cloud and Townsend, and the name of the book is Boundaries. Many of you ordered that book this week. Many more of you I encouraged to order it. That's why I told you about that book, because God wants to keep you healthy, and sometimes, many times, that requires some healthy boundaries, some emotional, sometimes physical boundaries in your life. And God can help you create those. That book will guide you through that process. You know, relationships, as we know, they're tough. But wouldn't it be nice to have at least one, just one relationship in our lives that was conflict-free, no conflict? Many newlyweds, they expect that that is exactly where they are headed with their marriage. But they are headed for a great, ginormous shock, aren't they? That person that they could not keep their hands off of, the person they couldn't get enough of, that person, so they married them? Yeah. Well, all too soon, it gets to the point where they just can't stand them, right? You understand that? Every relationship that you have, every single relationship has conflict. And the reality is this, that marriage is likely the place in your life for the greatest conflict and the deepest hurt. Because you're closer and you're vulnerable and you're transparent in that relationship. So while it's the place for the greatest hurt, it's also the most likely place for supernatural change to occur. But not just marriage. Every relationship has conflict. Every relationship eventually causes pain. And then we're left wishing for something different. Wondering why they said what they said. Why they did what they did. Why they didn't say what we thought they should say. And why they didn't do what we expected them to do. And we're left with conflict and regrets and frustrations. And we say, well, I, listen, I, I did that because you did this. Or we say, I wouldn't be so angry if you would just stop doing that. And they have done something annoying, something frustrating, and maybe, maybe even something sinful. And it can all be summed up by us saying this, will you stop causing 
conflict in our relationship. Please, will you stop? When relationships are good, our life is amazing. When they go bad, our world is a treacherous maze. You know, even Jesus had conflict. Even Jesus had conflict in his family. His family, except for his parents, his family didn't believe that he was who he was. I mean, can, can you imagine being the brother of Jesus? I mean, for real. James was a brother of Jesus. Jesus is like, I'm the Messiah, the Son of God. And James is like, what? You're who? Mom! Jesus is saying he's the Son of God. And Mary's like, he is. Can you imagine trying to be the brother of Jesus? Well, the brother of Jesus, James, he did not believe Jesus was the Son of God. He did not follow Jesus. So let's get some conflict management help. And we use the word management because we're not going to get a conflict ending help. We're never going to end conflict, this side of heaven at least. Let's start our journey this morning with a question. Here's our first question. Why do we fight each other? That's a great question. And for the answer, we're going to go to this man named James, who is the brother of Jesus. Talk about conflict. James knows about conflict because as the brother of Jesus, James grew up not believing that Jesus was God's son. At the very least, he refused to follow Jesus. I imagine there was great conflict in that family. But this brother who refused to follow Jesus eventually became a Jesus follower. And he became the leader of the church in Jerusalem, which at that time was the largest church. And James wrote the book of James, which is in our New Testament Bible, which by date, if you look at the order of the books in your, in your table of contents, James kind of falls down towards the very end of the Bible in the New Testament. But the reality is James was very likely the first New Testament book that was written. So how does James, now the follower of Jesus, answer this question, why do we fight each other? Here's what he says. We're going to look today through James chapter 4. Here's the first verse. James says, what is causing the quarrels and the fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? That's what he says. Don't they come from inside of you? Now, James is saying there is more to this conflict between you and another person. There's more to it than we think we're fighting about. James is saying there is something inside of us driving us, and we can't see it because we can only see them. They are the problem. That's all we can see. In this conflict, we say, yeah, I can give you the reason why we have conflict. It's them. They are the reason we're having a conflict. If they would stop doing that or just start doing this, I, I would not have done that. I would not have responded that way. I would not have done this if they hadn't have done that. We say, yes, they are the problem. They're the reason, the cause of my conflict. And James is like, no, 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 no. Actually, 
It's you. Yipes. James goes on, verse 2. You want what you don't have, so you scheme and you kill. Wow, he's talking to some rough folks here to get it. You're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it. So you fight and you wage war to take it from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you do ask God, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. James is saying that we have these desires inside of us that turn selfish and they're battling each other. You know, all of our desires aren't wrong. In fact, God has given us so many desires, God-given desires. But when those desires turn selfish, that's when they turn wrong. That's when they turn evil. That's when they turn sinful. We have desires, God-given desires of comfort and pleasure and recognition, power, control, acceptance. Those are not wrong in and of themselves until... They become selfish. For example, comfort. Nothing wrong with being comfortable. But when I begin to say, I want comfort, and yes, I deserve comfort, and you better not get in the way of me getting comfort, it becomes wrong. It becomes evil. And you know what I'm really saying? If that's what I'm saying, I'm really saying I'm afraid of extra work. I'm afraid that I'm going to have to do more work than you do, that I'm going to get an unfair amount of work, and you're going to get away with nothing. That's what I'm saying. Or the God-given desire of pleasure. Nothing wrong with pleasure, but when I begin to turn it inward and it becomes selfish, that's when it becomes evil and all about me. And what it's really saying is, I'm afraid of pain. Then there's the, the desire of recognition. Nothing wrong with being recognized. But when it begins to turn inward and become selfish, then I begin saying, I'm afraid of being overlooked. I'm afraid of being insignificant. And it becomes selfish and it begins to become sinful. Nothing wrong with power. We need authority. It helps us function. It's part of structure. But when it gets selfish, it says this, I'm afraid you're going to have power over me. And then it becomes selfish and wrong. Nothing wrong with control, the desire for control and order and having everything organized and where it needs to be and everything has a place and an order and nothing wrong with that. But when it becomes selfish, then we become afraid of unpredictability and we become afraid that things are going to be out of control and we can't control the end result it becomes selfish nothing wrong with acceptance but when it becomes selfish and controlling then you know what happens then i become i, I i'm afraid that you're going to reject me and so i do everything i can to make you accept me when our desires get out of whack, things will turn ugly fast as those desires become self-centered. And James says feelings like these are always under the surface of conflict. You know, as soon as I separate myself 
and my desires from God, who, by the way, created all of my desires, and God is the only one who can really meet all of my desires. But as soon as I separate those desires from God, they become, those desires become all about self, all about serving me, all about my glory, not God's glory. You know, Jesus said the greatest commandment, the greatest commandment is this, love God. He said the second one, equal to that, is love the people around you. Love God, love the people around you. But when your desires become selfish, your love for God and your love for the people around you are replaced by your love for yourself. And your desire to bring God glory is replaced by your desire to bring yourself glory. So there are two giant things that get in the way when I am in a conflict and they're regarding my desires that turn selfish. It is this. I'm looking for my glory and I have nothing but self-love. So that leads me to question number two. What has become more important to me than my relationship with God? There's something out there. What is it? What has become? In this conflict, something's wrong. So what has become more important to me than my relationship with God? Now, James goes on in verse 4. Very subtly, he says, you adulterers. Wow, that's harsh. He says, don't you realize that a friendship with the world makes you an enemy with God? He says, I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. When we make anything, anything or anyone first place in our lives besides God, James said, instead of being a friend of God, we then become a friend of evil and an enemy of God. So when my normal God-given desire becomes selfish and I begin to live for my glory, motivated by my love for self, James is saying, in that moment, I begin a love affair with evil and I'm choosing to be an enemy of God. And James says, that is spiritual adultery. Adultery. That is no small word, no small matter. You see, God alone deserves the attention of our heart. But in this moment, we've made something else our best friend or our primary focus. We have, in this moment, fallen in love with something besides God, some kind of God-given desire has turned rogue and become selfish, and that has become evil inside of us. That's how James describes it. And that specifically, whatever it is, has become more important to me in that moment than my relationship with God. Now remember, this is what's so strange to me. James is talking about our conflict with another person. This was eye-opening for me after decades of living. 
I'm beginning to realize this. James is saying, if there is something going wrong in a relationship with another person, then there is something going wrong in our relationship with God first. And James is saying, somehow, on some level, in some way, I have cheated on God. With this desire that has gone wild inside of me, I've cheated on God. And the first sign that that is taking place in my life, in my heart, the first sign of that is that I am in conflict with someone else. I've cheated on God. I've committed adultery against God by pursuing this selfish desire more than I am pursuing God. So that leads me to my next question, question number three. So what does God do with people who cheat on him? What does God do with people like me who have cheated on God? If God wants you to understand the depth of your relationship and your connection with him, he wants you to see it. The Bible uses this, this imagery often. He wants you to see it. I know this is strange, especially for guys, but God wants you to see your relationship with him as if you were married to God. So from that perspective, then what happens when we cheat on him? Think about a married couple. Let's say the husband has a one-night stand. He has taken this intimate part of his marriage that only belongs, only belongs to his wife, and he has carelessly given it to someone else. What would you expect the, the offended spouse to do? Would you expect his wife to act as if nothing had happened? Do you think she would say, oh, that's okay, honey. Nobody's perfect. No. You, you would, I mean, if she said that, you would wonder if she really even cared about their marriage and their relationship at all. No, no, you, you would expect some jealousy. You, you would expect that she would be angry over the adultery. And guess what? That's the way it is with God, too. God is not casual when we are unfaithful to him. Listen to what James says in the next verse, verse 5. What do you think the scriptures mean when they say that the Holy Spirit, whom God has placed within us, if you're a follower of his, jealously longs for us to be faithful? James is saying God is a jealous God who cares deeply about us and about our relationship with him. So much, in fact, that God jumps in and he pursues us for our own good. Verse 6, but he gives us even more grace to stand against such evil desires. As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud but favors the humble. Listen to what James is saying. 
when we cheat on God, when we stray in our relationship with him and, and we run into the arms of some kind of replacement love, the spirit of God that he has placed in us, if you're a follower of his, God's spirit in you becomes concerned and he becomes jealous. You know, you can set jealous and God that's hard to put together. You can easily substitute the word zealous. Translates very nicely with that word, zealous. God becomes zealous. It, 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 that can help you understand his attitude as he pursues you passionately. His reaction to us when we have cheated on him. Like a faithful person whose spouse was unfaithful. God is zealous to do whatever it takes to reclaim your affection and the attention of our hearts. Not because he needs us. Not because God's self-worth is suffering because we have given our heart to another thing. No, that's not why he does it. God pursues us zealously because he loves us. That's why. So when God pursues us, and as James is saying, as we then respond to him, and we humble ourselves, and we return to him, he floods our lives with his grace. Now, if God pursues us enthusiastically to regain our affection, what do you think God uses to pursue us and to help regain our affection? This is what I'm learning. God uses other people. The people many times that we are in conflict with. That's the hidden blessing of conflict. And I never saw it. I always saw that person as my obstacle. I always saw that person as my hurt, as my frustration, as my enemy at times. God is using the difficult seasons in your life and in my life. Those difficult relationships that go through seasons of hurt. He's using those to help us see what we live for besides God. Inside that conflict that you're having with another person, in there, in that moment, lies an area of your affection that only belongs to God that you somehow and I somehow have claimed for our own and we've given it away to something else. I've always seen that person as my obstacle that I'm in conflict with, but I'm beginning to learn now they are actually a mirror 
helping me look inside of me. And it's not what they are saying. It's just the fact that there is conflict and it, the conflict itself becomes the mirror. God puts two people together in a relationship so that they can see themselves more clearly. And then they can repent more fully and in that process grow in their faith. I hope that like me, you are just now beginning to see how our all-knowing and all-wise God allowed that other person into your life. And if you will grow in your ability to engage in conflict a godly way, God is going to use that relationship to make you more and more and more like Jesus. You will never be able to avoid the conflict. It's, it's just a certainty. But that is a place where amazing growth takes place. That leads us to question number four. Once we are rescued, once God's grace has rescued us, what should we do? What do we do? Ladies, I want to give you a heads up. If you are a reader, write down the name of this book. You must read this book. It's called this, Redeeming Love, and it's by Francine Rivers. If you've never read it, I encourage It's a fiction book, but it is amazing. If you've never read it, ladies, go get that book and read it. So here's the question. Once we are rescued, what should we do? Well, James, give us, he gives us the answer. Let's go to verse 10 now. That's next. James says, so humble yourselves before God. So God wants to, to see that your allegiance to something other than God, he wants you to see it as serious. And he commands us, he commands us to be humble and to cry out to God. Is humble yourselves before God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So he wants you to humble yourself, and he also wants you to see that this is a spiritual battle that's taking place. And God is calling you to engage with spiritual warfare against the evil one in this battle. Here's how he goes on in verse 8. He said, come close to God, and God will come close to you. In other words, begin to resist the attraction to something else, whatever that selfish desire is that is under the surface, begin to resist that attraction and stop. The moment you sense it, stop. And he says, turn around and run to God. And when you get to God, guess what? He doesn't backhand you. No, he actually comes close to you and he embraces you. He goes on, wash your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. James is saying, so when we humble ourselves and we run back to God, God begins to purify our hearts. And as our hearts are being purified, our behavior begins to change. So as our hearts change, our behavior changes. 
when we have an appropriate, a humble response, look what happens. He gives it to us next, verse 9. Let there be tears for what you have done. He's saying, this is serious. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. He's saying, this is heavy. Let there be sadness instead of laughter. This is not really jolly. We've cheated on God, he says. Let there be sadness instead of laughter, gloom instead of joy. But here's what happens when we turn our hearts back to God. Verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up in honor. James is saying, if we in humility will drop low before God, then God's grace will lift us back up and he will lift us up cleaner. He will lift us up stronger. He will lift us up with renewed honor. And so in this moment in your life, whatever the conflict is that you have with another person, your relational conflict in this moment, as James describes it, can now be godly. Good things now can begin to happen between you and that other person, between you and God. Now, here's what I would like you to do. Get your pen ready to write some things down or possibly get your phone's camera ready to take a picture of the screen because I'm going to have some steps on there that can change your life if you'll work those steps. This is the moment that in your life, your tires will get traction and you will move forward. Or if you choose not to do this, your tires of your life will just spin and spin and dig a deeper, deeper, deeper hole. And I'm asking you not to wait to try to use these steps on a great big marriage-ending, relationship-ending conflict. I'm asking you to use this on those little, bitty, tiny, small conflicts all through your day. Because if you don't use them on the small conflicts, you will never, ever be able to use them on the big ones. You have to practice them every day on the little ones. I mean, you, it's those little ones, those moments where under your breath, you just say, I can't believe they did that. I can't believe they said that. I can't believe they didn't do that. I can't believe it. Those moments you walk away in disgust, those moments your eyebrows are raised and you think to yourself, what an idiot. Those small conflicts all through your day, if you will use these steps, then, then... When you get to the big conflicts that are potentially relationship ending, you're ready, already practiced and able to use these. They're not so earth shattering, but they're good steps that can help you. So, to allow God to do what only he can do through a conflict with another person. Here's the first thing. Understand that conflict is a way 
God can work in our lives, and it can end up being good. It can. I've always seen that other person as an obstacle. I never realized until very recently that it is an opportunity for God to do something in me, regardless of if that other person is open to what God wants to do. for them. It doesn't matter. God can do something in me. They are not my obstacle. They are actually there as a mirror, helping me see inside of my life. And it's not what they say. They're not saying, hey, here's what's in your life. It's a mirror reflecting just the fact that there's a conflict allows me to know there's something under the surface in me. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. Identify what tends to lure your affection away from God. We have to find out what it is. If that conflict is a sign that there's something going on between me and God as well, I have to find out what that is. What is that desire very specifically inside of me? What is that desire that has gone rogue? What is that desire that very possibly has become an idol of worship for me? Is it acceptance? Is it power or control or recognition? Is it comfort or pleasure? Or is it just that I want to be right all the time? I mean, these are just the most common ones. It may be something else for you, but we must identify what is the desire in us that has gone rogue and has taken our attention off of God and placed it on ourselves. It has become selfish. Once I identify that, here's the next step. Recognize your normal strategy to get what you want. We all have a normal response, uh, almost an automatic response to conflict. Anytime conflict happens with another person, we have this tendency to respond the same way almost all the time. Maybe you love to fight because you love to prove that you are right. Maybe that's your response. Or maybe you avoid conflict at all costs because that person must accept you. So you avoid conflict and you long to be accepted by them. Or maybe you avoid conflict just because it's uncomfortable. But we all have a response to conflict. Identify what is your normal response. And then the next step, emerge as a spiritual warrior. Once you identify your normal response to conflict, then you need to emerge as a spiritual warrior. When you see what you typically live for, that's that desire that you've taken and pursued instead of God, and how you usually try to get it, once you realize all that, now you can start with repentance As a spiritual warrior, you can repent and you can be brutally honest with God and yourself about your sin, not theirs. You don't need to repent to God and count their sins. You look in your heart. What is the desire that has gone rogue and has allowed you to pursue that desire in this conflict instead of God? And you can do business with God. You can repent, be a spiritual warrior, repent, be brutally honest about that with God. And here's the last thing. And pray 
about what God wants you to do next. What does God want you to do next? What does he want from you in this conflict? And I'm going to ask you to pray to God about this using this verse. Write this down. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 14 through 18. You can take a picture of the first screen. It'll have the verse listed on it. I want to read this to you. Use this verse as your filter of saying, God, what do you want next from me in this conflict? Here's the verse. We end with this. Brothers and sisters, Paul says, we urge you to warn those who are lazy, to encourage those who are timid, to take tender care of those who are weak. Be patient with everyone. See that no one pays back evil for evil, but always try to do good to each other and to all people. Always be joyful. Never stop praying. Be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. And I'm asking you, my friends, will you take these steps with me and apply them to the conflict you have with another person? Do these things using this passage. Let's pray. Father, forgive me for not seeing relational conflict as one of your often use methods of changing me, of helping me see areas in my life, uh, my desires that I have placed above you. Forgive me for allowing my, my God-given desires to become warped and selfish. Forgive me for pursuing those desires above all else, uh, above you, God, and above other people around me. Father, help me to take these life-changing, these life-giving steps Every time that I feel relational conflict brewing, God, help me, no matter how small the conflict might be, help me take these steps. And God, help me to change. Help me to grow in my faith as I, as I work through conflict in a godly way. Help me to stop dealing with conflict as I have so often automatically done. Jesus, we need your help right now every day, all through this week. Give us the wisdom to know what to do, God, with what we have heard. And Jesus, give us the courage to do it. It is in your name we ask these things. Amen.